Lee against Wiseman, Joe. Reading four. It's a big case, isn't it? It is a big case. In 1992. Yeah, and uh, one of one of the. I, do you think school prayer is as much of an issue as it was back in the 80s? I mean, it seems like in the 80s there was this expectation with the Reagan appointees that that maybe school prayer would be approved, right? And there was a sense that maybe it should be approved. And that, I don't. I don't have my finger on the pulse of. Yeah, and just to be more precise, you mean. Um, school organized and and sort of officially sanctioned prayer. You're showing you're showing there the lawyerly attitude toward this, right? You're setting up your target as an archer, right? You're trying to set up that target more precisely. And I'm just thinking in the '80s, when before I even knew what law was, as you know, as a kid, and I would see Tom Brokaw come on the news, right? Because everyone watched the nightly news, and there weren't that many stations, and there was a little, you know, there's a little graphic up there, and the issue was just school prayer, school prayer, just yeah. school prayer, right? And, and your impulse is to say, well, wait, what do we mean by school prayer? If, what does it mean for the government to allow prayer in schools? And how do we think about that in light of the First Amendment, right? Which says there, yeah. you know, uh, that, that Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. This great tension between the Establishment Clause and the Free Exercise Clause. But am I, am I right or wrong about the temperature of the school prayer issue? I don't know. I don't have a sense for that. I think a lot of the, uh, I wonder whether a lot of the contemporary discussions about things like uh, charter schools and homeschooling and other similar topics are are just ways that this has been transposed into a slightly different mm-hmm. set of dimensions, but it's about a lot of the same stuff. Yeah. If we want to kind of just go right for the jugular of this thing, it's like, you know, there's this underlying debate about the ability of of traditional values to be uh um replicated and and reinforced in a in an official environment right i mean there are people who right by the officials themselves. yeah by the yeah. officials to say no this is who we are right and and our and our you know in schools and in other official instances we should transmit who we are like this is us and a lot of this debate, we talked about this in the town of Greece case a long time ago, right? It's about this uh, this outsiders versus insiders kind of thing. And the one way insiders can define themselves is by saying you're an outsider. And there's something more offensive about uh, about that, right? About about creating an official program which defines outsiders than there is about trying to speak to common values. Mm-hmm. And the whole problem with school prayer is that it kind of you know, this non-sectarian prayer, if you like, is that it kind of does both. They're trying, you know, so, so the, the principle here, so this is an issue of, as you know, because you've read the, the case, um, uh, whether to allow, um, whether to allow clergy to deliver prayer at formal graduation ceremonies for middle schoolers and high schoolers. And not just allow it, but, but actually set it up and, yeah. and, um, and provide it officially. It's part, it's an official part of the program. It's organized by the head of the school, who's acting pursuant to this uh, state policy that allows the heads of schools to do this. So it's a very specific state school is playing a very specific role right. in creating this uh, religious observance within this graduation. They're ceremony. making a part of the program. They're saying not only, you know, not only are we okay with it's happening, but we think it should happen because it is happening. We're making it happen. Right. Right. And I belabor the point simply because there's a sense in which, you know, <laughs> people could be praying before, during and after depending on how a person in that faith tradition engages in the behavior known as prayer, right? 
Yeah. Um, there's a lot of prayer activity that can be going on without much awareness of the people around the person who's engaged in praying. It'd be happening all over the place all the time. Right. What the difference is that's not the officially organized and, and officially sanctioned prayer activity. That's part of the graduation ceremony. That's a person engaged in private prayer. And I, I, yeah. And I think how you think about this case in part depends on how you see, how you see the institution as just kind of talking about how this is like, this is who we are in a, in a non-exclusive way or whether you see it as a kind of in, in inherently exclusive. And one of the things that when I was reading this over again, that made me go, huh, is this line, the school principal petitioner, Robert E. Lee. Did you see that? <laughs> I didn't, rec- I, didn't re- I didn't notice his name. Was, no. Yeah. But, I mean, but, but, but Robert E. Lee got a rabbi to give a prayer celebrating diversity and inclusiveness in religion. Now, to be fair, it's, it celebrates religion over irreligion, right? And yes. that's increasingly the debate these days, right? It's True. Even a so-called non-sectarian prayer is, in, is inherently kind of taking a side, but it's taking a side in favor of religion. Let's maybe bracket that for just a second, right? But it, there is a thought, I think, from some of the people who support this kind of thing and supported it then, that we're kind of celebrating the, the idea of solemnity and our, and, and, and our like, collective community you know, in, inferiority to the deity or, 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 or at least we're solemnizing, solemnizing this is like, you know, we are thankful for this community that we have, right? And we are together, right? And a way of saying we're together is to recognize our, that we're all in the same boat. And, and the religious register is a way that people signify, right? That we are all in the same boat together. And it does seem to, like, if you think of it that way, it's a very different valence from saying, we're going to say something in this official setting, which, which distinguishes us from them. Right. Um, and that's the danger of sectarian prayer. Like, you know, we are Presbyterian and not Methodist, for example. Right. I mean, that's a, that's a way of trying to, to use the official reins to, to define outsiders and insiders. And if you see this more as we're just trying to define, we're not trying to define ourselves so much as like celebrate ourselves as a community in a way that draws people together then you see it differently. Now, that's not saying that I think this case came out the wrong way. I think it came out the right way, but we can, we can talk about that. Am I right that that's kind of part of what's behind here is people are just seeing the performance of prayer in different ways? Certainly, without a doubt. But we have the Establishment Clause. And, and what does it mean? Now, as an original matter, I think there's really good research on this, and, and it's just well known, right, that the original purpose of the Establishment Clause was to keep the federal government from interfering with state churches, right? States yeah, had, the states official, had churches. official churches. Absolutely. And like almost everything else in the original constitution, a lot of it was written to keep the feds from doing things that interfered with the states, right? Thinking of the states as protectors of rights and the states as protectors of the right. public and the feds as a potentially malignant danger, um, but, ne- but a necessary one, so, right? So pre-Civil War and before the Civil War amendments, 13th, 14th, 15th, um, I, I think the the conventional reading of the establishment clause in the First Amendment would be that it doesn't interfere with the ability of a state to establish a church for an official church for that state. Right. So Virginia can make the Church of England the official church of Virginia and can collect taxes to build church buildings and do all sorts of things, all of which we would have you as, as ferociously unconstitutional, uh, in part because the Civil War amendments applied the 
provisions in the Bill of Rights against the states. Blah, to blah, some blah. extent, to some extent, to right? some extent, we're right. going to talk about that later in the course. And and the, the and that is said the... right there in the first paragraph in the Lee against Weissman case, mm-hmm. right? That the Fourteenth Amendment makes the Establishment Clause applicable with full force against the states. By the way. Um, you know how the case is going to turn out as soon as you see the phrase yeah. full force. Right. Part of the reason for reading this case is to think about how we transform text like that into something we can apply to decide a case. Because I just read those words and, and, and it's quite obvious that it's only refraction through the 14th Amendment that makes this applicable to states at all and it does something different. But they're the same words that were there before, right? So, True. So what, what do they mean? How do I decide? And the test that the court had developed and which is still used but still attacked quite often is the so-called lemon test what it does is not an impermissible establishment of religion if if the state um the state's law one reflects a clearly secular purpose two has a primary effect that neither advances nor inhibits religion and three avoids excessive government entanglement with religion and a lot of these cases, um, a lot of, of cases applying the limit to a lot of establishment clause cases uh, more recently have involved public displays of religious iconography, like um, creches on, in, in a public square or a menorah display in a public square or, or both usually. And in the course of these, um, Justice O'Connor, and this is after this case, developed, kind of, developed this endorsement test where another way of seeing what's going on with Lemon is to, is to kind of look to see whether a state is, by its actions, endorsing a particular religious viewpoint or a particular religion, or even religion over non-religion. So it's, this is tricky. Like, how do we develop a test from these bare words that will allow us to sort invalid establishments of religion from ordinary, long-standing, traditional acknowledgments of religious practice that may be okay? And that's one distinction that the cases make, is between sure. establishments, endorsements, advancements on the one hand and mere acknowledgments on the other. To give you an example, in God we trust on the coin, right, versus um, uh, leading prayers in a classroom that are sectarian in nature, right, where you, where you make the kids say particular kinds of religious prayers, right? Those are clearly right. different things. And the court, you know, whatever else the court does, it wants to come up with a rule that meets its intuitions about how these cases should come out. All right. So, now, did what you I, mean to say rule as in rule as opposed to standard, no, or did I, you simply mean um, a a yardstick for measuring a, a a violation and distinguishing it from a non-violation? So I think this is an important thing to establish up front. Um, there's the word establish, right? Uh, is that oftentimes, oftentimes in law we will refer to like what the rule is or what should the rule be, without getting down into whether that thing should be a rule or standard. So we will talk about well, like what what should be in, like in your area, Joe. Like what should the what should the rule be which decides whether there's a fair use or not of a of a copyrighted um, of a copyrighted book. Like you know whether I can copy various parts of a book. Maybe we think that some of my uses should be exempted from the idea that I can't copy, right? And so what should the test be? What should the rule be? Well, we, we might get down into it and decide further about whether this should be more rule-like or more standard-like, but we would still use the word rule to encompass both. Okay. So avoiding any ambiguity there. Is that a long, that's too long. We're embracing the ambiguity. Yeah. Yeah. So the court has worked really hard over time to come up with a, a viable rule that sorts these kinds of in God we trust cases from the true sectarian school prayer cases. Like what, what can sort these in closer cases like the government allows a Christmas tree and a manger and other things to go up on the 
on the uh, courthouse lawn. Like, are, is that an establishment? These are difficult. You need some kind of rule that'll do that. Yeah. And the lemon test kind of does that, but you know, it, it's very standard like. And there's a lot of argument over how it should apply and, and a lot of argument over whether it even sorts things at all or just restates the problem. And so O'Connor, after this case and in a series of cases, has come up with this endorsement test, right, that what you're really looking for is whether government has taken a side. And let me, let me read you what she wrote in, in another case. Uh, the Establishment Clause prohibits government from making adherence to a religion relevant in any way to a person's standing in the political community. Government can run afoul of that prohibition by endorsement or disapproval of religion. Endorsement sends a message to non-adherents that they are outsiders, not full members of the political community, and an accompanying message to adherents that they are insiders, favored members of the political community. The proper inquiry under the purpose prong of Lemon, I submit, is whether the government intends to convey a message of endorsement or disapproval of religion. I like this. I like this a lot. Because I think it gets it whatever it is, whatever principle we think there is lurking in the Establishment Clause, right? It, I, I really do think it's about saying that there can't be, that gov- what government can't do is create insiders and outsiders with respect to religion. Like there is, in our system, there is, there is a civic community which is not sorted in hierarchies or in castes by religious belief. And so she's looking there. It's a test which looks for what signal the government is sending, right? And so you operationalize this by looking at what, a, what an observer would think about the government's message. And now, that's, we don't have that in this case, but I, I, I throw it out there because I think it's an important part of elaborating this general principle of anti-establishment. So we've got a, we've got a prohibition that's stated in this constitutional provision we're trying to understand how it might apply to a given set of circumstances, and it helps us a lot in thinking about how it might apply to understand why it's there at all. Mm-hmm. Why would you take the trouble in a constitution to prohibit government activity of a certain variety, of a certain type? Mm-hmm. Here, it's an activity that is an, that is an establishment of religion. Why would you do that? Why would you prohibit a government and and after the Civil War and the 14th Amendment, it's a state government or a national government. Why would you prohibit the government from establishing a religion, right? I mean, the Constitution goes out of its way to empower the national government to do things like establish post offices, right? So post office is good, <laughs> state-sanctioned church is bad, right? That's the, that's the apparent message. Why? Like, what is it about them that makes it the opposite of the post office. And, and thinking about some of that might help you do a better job implementing that prohibition, it seems to me. And if you look at the distinction between... Canada- and that's something, by the way, that yeah. I think the majority and the dissent have in common. Right? Well, They're both trying to talk a lot yeah. about why this thing is there. Well, yeah, that's exactly right. And I think that's, that's where we identify the basic disagreement here, right? So we, we look at Kennedy and then O'Connor and other cases, and we see a a building of a standard from a, an assumed purpose, which is kind of gathered from strains of American thought over time and from precedent, right? That, that this is about government not taking sides in religion. It's about not creating castes and, and an or, a government orthodoxy, right? And we get that from some of the writings of the founders, from some of the ideas of the founding, right? That's about religious freedom in the Establishment Clause, just like the free exercise, right, is about religious freedom in a way. Here it's freedom from uh, it's it's a freedom from being told you're an outsider rather than actual prohibition of what you're doing, uh, like what free exercise clause might be. But 
Scalia says that that's that's not where we should gather kind of the purpose of this clause from. It's not just picked here here and there from strains of American thought, right? But we have to look at what the actual text was meant to accomplish. And there he sees a very narrow purpose, which I think, you know, I'm skeptical that you could actually identify any particular purpose there, especially after the refraction through the 14th Amendment, right, and the application of this against the states. Another part of the disagreement is about the, and it relates to something you said about the rule standards distinction and about who, where, where power is, where power resides when you frame something as a rule versus framing it as a standard. And I think the dissenters are, are concerned about, or it seems to me they're concerned about, um, coming up with a, a, a way to analyze this establishment question that they think will put less discretion in the hands of judges. And they're relying on things that seem like they're not in judges' control. Like, what's been our long historical practice mm-hmm. of doing this thing, right? Um, what is the kind of thing that had a specific sort of penalty associated with it rather than psychological coercion that, uh, that a high schooler might experience, right? The, the, the dissenters seem to be pointing to things that, in a way, seem more rule-like, Less well, discretion in the hand of a decision maker after the fact. And, and the majority is, is, is very explicit about this, you know, that they are not embracing a rule, that this is standards driven. This is about like uncovering our tradition over time. They say our jurisprudence in this area is of necessity one of line drawing, of determining at what point a dissenter's rights of religious freedom are infringed by the state. Now, line drawing sounds more rule-like, like you're on one side of the line or the other. But what they mean here is that this is about judging where to, where to draw a line. Right. Um, in other places, they say law reaches past all formalism. I noticed that phrase in there, right? That Indeed. In arguing that it, it, it's not enough that a, a kid could have chosen not to go to graduation at all, right? They said that's, you know, it's, we got to think about, like, what does that mean for a kid to choose not to go to graduate? Right. Are they really free not to go to graduation at all? And what sense are they free? Like, this is not a, an on-off spigot as to whether there was compulsion or not, right? Rather, and the majority turns on this rather than on endorsement, which we can get back to in a second, but that the state has done something. The state has made this religious practice a part of its ceremony and kids are coerced into participation, right? Where coercion is not an on-off thing. It's not like they didn't make a law or put in, in, in place any particular punishment, but we can detect in this practice that in the mind of a kid, there is going to be a need to send a message of approval that they may not want to. They're put in the position of having to choose noisy protest against participation. And of course, the dissent says this is a false choice because standing up and being respectful is not at all a participation. And there's a, there's a, um, a concurrence here which gets us closer to endorsement. Like it doesn't matter whether the kid is coerced or not. What matters is that the state is saying, this is what we're doing, right? They are endorsing religion over non-religion or a particular kind of religion over, uh, over other particular religions. So part of what they're disagreeing about is the role of a judge. I mean, in a way, this goes back to Marbury against Madison, that, you know, who, who's really, which government actors, which officials are going to be put in the position of making the most critical decision and when about what sorts of social practices would and wouldn't run afoul of this establishment clause. Right. Because they seem to have different views about what the role of a judge is, um, they have different views about how judges should implement this particular uh, prohibition. 
And Scalia says this is not our our job is not to engage in a in a free free ranging and continuous exploration of this uh, of the meanings of these things in our culture and not to look at you know and to weigh the level of coercion against something else. He says, I see no warrant for expanding the concept of coercion beyond acts backed by threat of penalty, a kind of coercion that, happily, is readily discernible to those of us who have made a career of reading the disciples of Blackstone rather than of Freud. (laughs) Blackstone being a a famous jurist from England who set out a lot of the uh, a lot of the common law rules that are followed. So there's, yes. you know, uh, and, and, and one of the few law books, for example, that's that was widely available to people in the United States at the time the Constitution was written was Blackstone's commentaries on the laws of England. So this is a, I think, a perfect debate about rules and standards. It's a it's in the heart of the culture wars. Um, and it's it's another case that helps us to think about how we move from very general pronouncements of legal principles to more specific things that courts can actually do. And I think you ha- it can actually apply. Yeah. And I think it helps to remember, as we mentioned in the, in the Marbury episode, that these are actual people who have jobs to do. Right? Yeah. I have to decide these cases. And what I write down today is going to affect what I write down in the future. So my job is to write down something that is not going to be embarrassing in the future where I can actually apply it and provide not some, gu- not just guidance to, all the people who will live under this law, although that's a crucial part of what they do, but also something that I, that I myself can apply in the next case. Yeah. Last point I wanted to make here, and then we can, then I think we should stop. This, this is a very rich case. There's a lot to talk about. Whew. But um, as, you, as you said, we could talk about this case for two hours and go into different aspects of it, Joe. But um, I, and I, I know you students will be disappointed that we're, we're going to be shy of two hours, but nonetheless, <laughs> um, try, we're going to try to keep this reasonably short. So Scalia ends his dissent with talking about religion as a necessarily public act, right? He, he distinguishes it from pornography, actually, right? That, mm. that religion is, is, is not something that we, um, it, it's not a personal private indulgence, right? But it is a collective act, at least for many. Like, I assume right. one could have a very private religion. Uh, um, and that, that's the kind of struggle, I think, that continues today, right? That that people think what it means to be religious is to, ha- is to act a particular way in a community. And it raises some of the toughest questions, I think, about the extent to which uh, a pluralistic society really can be neutral as between different religious faiths or no faith at all. Um, that, that the conclusion that religious faith tradition requires a publicness and a community-oriented publicness at that um, really raises the stakes on the question of, is this something we can be pluralistic about in our society? Can yeah. we really be neutral about this? Right. Well, if, if religion means what he says it means it, to a big part of the community in a fundamental way, it's going to be a lot harder to be neutral, it seems to me. You remember uh, that documentary, Super Size Me by Mor- Morgan Spurlock? Sure. So he did this series of TV shows where he would put people, to, people who disagreed strongly together like, and, you know, uh, I don't remember if, if every show was like this, but one of them was uh, a Mormon woman who was strongly opposed to gay marriage and went to live with two gay men who were, um, who, who were raising a child. Mm. And I forget what state, but some other state. And she came to like them very much. I mean, they were, they were very good parents, kind of model parents, model citizen types. And, and they welcomed her in there, even though they disagreed about this. And it, and it ended very, I would say badly, like she came to appreciate them as people. She thought of them as good people, but I, what's, 
really stuck out at me is that she could never, she was not for gay marriage at the end of the show. She was still, and she thought that she had, you know, she, she thought that they could agree to disagree on this. You know what I mean? And, 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 and the perspective of the gay parents was, this is not a relationship that can continue unless you respect our right to do this. Right. But for her, her right to believe as a, as a Mormon was the right to support state power in prohibiting that kind of relationship. Right. She couldn't conceive, she couldn't conceive that she could practice her religion privately and kind of stay out of their lives. Right. She didn't see it as interfering in their lives. She saw it as an attack on her ability to believe. And now I think part of that is just a logical mistake. I think she fundamentally did not get right. The, um, the nature of rights and which is why I would argue vociferously with the way that she approached that issue. But there's something deeply psychological going on there. I think about, about her approach to, um, her, her religious identity and its collective practice right? That made her unable to see how what she was asking for was not like the right to be left alone or the right to practice her religion, but the right for her religion to dominate a civic community. Yeah, there's sort of like a Venn diagram of, you know, um, the things about which I have the deepest commitments that I think should be reflected in public law and public life. That's one circle, right? And the things about which um, I have the deepest thoughts and feelings because they are part of my religious faith tradition. That's another circle, mm-hmm. that one over here. The degree to which <laughs> these circles do and don't overlap yeah. um, is, the, is what's going to amp up the level of complexity, right? The more they overlap, the, the more difficult it is to navigate the, the public world where people do disagree about stuff, right? And when you make the things about which they're disagreeing their religious faith, tradition, and values and beliefs, the lesson of history seems to be, right, um, uh, to quote the title of a famous movie from a few years ago, there will be blood, <laughs> right? That's the history teaches us that when you get people to disagree about that stuff, and you make that central to the body politic, that's tough. Yeah. That's really tough. Yeah. Well, plenty to talk about, but I will leave the rest for for class. Thanks again, Joe.